The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. As you do that, uh, allow me to wish you God's blessing in this season where we celebrate the advent of the Son of God and, and let you know what a privilege and genuine pleasure it is for Rhonda and me to be back with you, particularly at this season. Um, Earlier in the, the morning, the earlier service, uh, Dr. Light uh, introduced uh, us as a friend of the congregation, and that's a privilege. I also want to let you know how uh, thankful I am and pleased at the selection you have made in your senior pastor. Uh, it's something we have prayed for and uh, rejoice in you with, rejoice with you in, and uh, just trusting that the Lord in these years ahead will bless you and Dr. Walker as he has blessed you and Dr. Rogers in years past, particularly as the Word of God is held out from this pulpit. So we are thankful with you, rejoicing with you, and looking forward to what the Lord will do. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'll read all the way through to verse 21 as we consider what the Lord has to say to us in this portion of Scripture. I invite you to listen with your, not only with your mind, but with your heart because this is the word of our God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were all filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them according concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we've been able to sing your praises and rejoice. We thank you that we have been able to lift our prayers to you, even prayers of deep burden and grief. And we thank you that now you have given us and preserved for us by your Holy Spirit this record of the birth of your Son. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would now work through your word preached so that we might be able to see and sense something of the glory of what you did on that day. Lord, that our faith might be clarified and deepened and made more sure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm hoping that one of the gift givers in my family thinks of giving me a new biography this year. That's what I read when I get downtime. I thrive on good accounts of some figure who had an impact on history. Biographies can have a massive impact on your life and in your ministry. Uh, I assign biographies of figures in the history of the church to my pastoral students, and I do a talk on the value of reading biographies to the students that I mentor. Biographies, when they are well done, teach you history. They teach you character, both good and bad. They can inspire you. They can even orient you to where you live in the world and why the world is the way it is right now. So I'd be really happy if there was a good biography under the tree. Hint, hint to my family that might be listening. (laughs) The New Testament gives us four infallible, impeccable, inspiring, life and eternity transforming biographies of the greatest pivotal figure in history, Jesus Christ. The four biographies are called the Gospels, and this Gospel that we're in today was written by the meticulous Dr. Luke. When he introduced his biography in chapter 1, he said that he had researched it and written it carefully and systematically to provide his readers with certainty about their faith in Jesus. And his careful, systematic, certainty-supporting method is never more evident than in the description of Jesus' birth. Dr. Luke gives us the details about where and how Jesus was born. Because it matters for the claims that Jesus is going to make about his right to rule us, about his power to redeem us. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke gives us the facts we need to be sure about Jesus. So here's the faith-securing impact of the details in the introduction to Jesus' biography that we've just read. The events around Bethlehem are recounted. The details are chosen to help us see and be certain about the good news of God's glory in Christ and to share it. The details 
about what happened in Bethlehem have been recounted to help us see and be certain about the good news of God's glory in Christ and to share it. Now we're going to see that, those details, under three categories this morning from the narrative. First, we're going to see the glory veiled, the glory veiled. Then we'll see the glory proclaimed. And then we'll look at sharing the glory seen, sharing the glory seen. First of all, let's see the glory veiled. Luke tells us that Jesus, he wants us to be sure about, was born of the house of David in the city of David, and he was born of Mary while she was still a virgin. It was pretty common for Rome as the ruling empire to take a census to assess taxes. This happened in other parts of the empire. It happened at other times as well. But Luke is very specific that this was the census when Augustus was the Caesar. Augustus was the great emperor. He was the one who put down the rivals and the rebellions so that there was peace throughout the empire, allowing it to prosper and remain in power. Quirinius was apparently an able soldier, an administrator, who had been assigned to govern that region of the empire. So, in giving us these facts, Luke not only objectifies his historic claims about Jesus, but he teaches us something about how God governs history towards His purposes. Now, this is actually really significant. Here's the most powerful man on the planet, Augustus, and his deputy, Quirinius. And they are exercising their power to move people around, they think, for the purpose of their empire. And really, they are instruments unwittingly in the plan of God to bring the King of Kings, who alone has all power, to bring lasting peace to the place of his birth. Just that alone shows us the glory of God. His sovereignty, His wisdom are such that even the most powerful leaders and nations on the planet are unwitting agents in His hand. Proverbs tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. I think that can help us when we're anxious about the motives and the movements of our government and the governments of the world. Even the most powerful in the world are not functioning outside of God's sovereign plan. History is His story, and God, in His power and His wisdom, uses governments and nations and events to accomplish His glorious purposes for His people. And perhaps being reminded of that can help us lift our heads above the waves of worry in what are increasingly turbulent times. When we watch the news and we read the headlines and we're inundated with Twitter feeds. As people who have the knowledge of God in Christ, we can be certain that God is using even these events to accomplish His kingdom purposes. 
Even the powerful earthly rulers who are leading the events, who don't even acknowledge God, people like Augustus and Quirinius, even in his hand, even when his hand is sometimes veiled behind the events of history, God's glory is seen in his command of history as he moves it towards his purposes. In this moment, he used the emperor of Rome to take the parents from Nazareth and put them in the city of David so that the promised king could be born at the right time in the right place. Now here's the reason that the place is so important, the city of David. See, if we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together, we'd have seen from Zechariah's hymn in chapter 1 how important God's covenant with David is to the hope of Israel how overjoyed Zechariah was that God was fulfilling his promise. Because to to the Israelites, David means deliverance. David means defeat of God's enemies and ours. So David means hope. And a major theme of the rest of the Gospel of Luke will be how Jesus' words and works reveal that he is King David's greater son. He is the promised king of Israel. But the king's glory is veiled when he comes. You might expect a king, especially this one, with as much in his name as this one has, to arrive on some great war horse, surrounded with his army, and trumpets announcing his arrival. King David's greater son arrives in a shed, perhaps a cave, in a feeding trough. See, we're in a season where we can at times sentimentalize the picture singing songs about how the snow was gently falling and the cattle were really well behaved and the sounds that were made in the stable, all like this was a painless, pristine delivery ready to be portrayed on a glossy card. Kent Hughes reorients us to the reality in his description of giving birth under these conditions. Sweat and pain and blood and cries. As Mary reached to the heavens for help, The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. Now, the point in reorienting us to that reality is not to discourage us from enjoying the sentiments of the season, but to see how profoundly humble were the circumstances for Israel's greatest king to be born in. And that's just the first installment in the way his kingdom actually comes. Jesus establishes his rule as a baby in a manger, lived as a Palestinian carpenter and a poor itinerant preacher, and then he died on the most vivid symbol of weakness and shame that their day had to offer, a cross. This is not the way that you establish yourself as a ruler according to the calculus of the world. Our current political season makes the contrast most vivid we are, our screens are filled with images of political candidates who present themselves as fit, muscular, even and impeccably well put together. And if you watch the debates, it's seen as a sign of weakness if you're not talking over the other person and constantly grabbing for the microphone. See, the optics of power in the world 
require posturing and strutting and promoting and circumstance. And we're told that's leadership. And then we adopt that worldly approach in the little kingdoms we're trying to build for ourselves in our marriage, in church fellowships, in relationships with family and partners at work and friends at school. The way we talk, the way we treat other people, the way we even take our place in a room says that we have to put our glory out there. But the rest of the gospel and the rest of the New Testament tell us this is the way the kingdom of Christ comes in this age. Self-denying, self-effacing humility and even suffering now until Jesus comes again at the end of the age. And that's the way it is for us because that's the way it was for Him to whom we're united if we believe. See, the Christmas celebration should remind us of the humble, poor manner in which Christ's kingdom comes in this age. And that should calibrate our expectations of our experience as subjects of God's kingdom in this age. Perhaps being more realistic, less triumphalistic in our expectations of how the only lasting kingdom really comes might calibrate our fears and our aspirations as we watch the world around us which we've enjoyed increasingly decay. Perhaps understanding this might help us when we do have to fight the fight for the truth that we might fight for the glory of God and less to preserve our own peace and prosperity. The veiled glory of the king actually becomes even more amazing when you remember that this was not only the son of David, but actually the eternal son of God. There's a little line in verse 5 that speaks volumes. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, why is that important? Mary is still his betrothed, not yet his wife, and she is with child. We're being reminded that Mary at the time of the birth is still a virgin. So the baby who came into the world this way is not only of David, he's divine. This is the child who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the will of man. The glory veiled is not just the glory of the promised king, but the glory of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And in that trough, in that cave, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man, to quote Thomas Goodwin. Just think about it, just for a moment. God the Father prepared a human body and soul which the Holy Spirit formed by His power in Mary's womb and the eternal Son of God in His love willingly took it unto Himself. So that the person in whom the divine and human nature were united came into the world there in those profoundly inglorious circumstances. 
Stephen Charnock expressed the wonder this way. What wonder that the two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should both have a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon the throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes, says Charnock. Men upon earth and angels in heaven. Friends, that astonishment is really the response to which we are led and what we're left with when they see the glory veiled that took place in that stall. A while back, a friend sent me a video of his granddaughter, probably because he was tired of hearing about mine. The little toddler had discovered a great big pair of pink sunglasses. And as she put them on, her grandfather took a video of her standing outside putting on the glasses. And as she takes in all that she can see through her new eyes, she simply goes, Wow! Wow! That's what happens when we put on the glasses of Scripture to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow! And seeing His glory even veiled in the way He came into the world can transform your hopes. It can transform your grief. It can transform your fears. Transform your life. Transform your whole eternity. Now we're helped in that by seeing not only the glory veiled, but also by seeing the glory proclaimed. That's in verses 8 to 14. The glory proclaimed. The idea of glory runs all the way through this episode. Now, the glory of God is the outward display of His beauty and His brilliance. It is the radiant expression of His manifold perfections. It's where and when God puts His perfections on display so that it can be seen, so that it can be sensed by creation. And at major moments in God's plan for His people, His glory gets visibly displayed. For example, the glory of God is seen over the tabernacle as Israel journeys through the wilderness. And the glory of God descended on the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. And the presence of God was so weighty that even the priests could not do their services. So now... Out in a field near Bethlehem, the Lord again puts His worth on display. What is veiled in the stable gets blasted in the countryside by angels. Because God again is going to do marvelously for the glory of His name and the good of His people, like the Exodus, like the temple, and beyond. I think it's worth grasping how the glory of God and the good of His people go together. See, sometimes we can fall into thinking that if we're really about God, if we're God-centered, then what happens to people doesn't really matter. Or we fall into the opposite error. Because people matter to God, we think that and act as though people are the ultimate focus. And we become genuinely man-centered. 
What we see here is that God does His people good for His glory, and it is His glory to do His people good. So with the angels, our desire should be focused on God being glorified in the good He does and has done for people. If we see the glory of God in Christ, listen, we will be passionate about His praise being magnified as His grace is multiplied. You say, where do you get that? Glad you asked. I draw it from what the angels say as the glory of God is displayed around them. Look at what they say. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. And the good news is that the Savior from sin, the promised anointed one, the Redeemer, the ruler, has been born. Then down in verse 14, the heavenly army sings, Glory to God in the highest. Give Him all the honor that He's worth and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, those upon whom he has shed his favor. Here's the point. The display of the declaration of the glory of God is centered around the gospel, the good news of that God is making peace with sinners through Jesus Christ. So, if we indeed see the glory of what he's done in Jesus, the two will go together in our lives. Being God-exalting and God-reverencing has to go together with being people-evangelizing. And the more we truly see about the glory of God in Christ, the more we will be passionate about the worship that reveres God and about the witness that rejoices in the gospel. In fact, we see that in the first witnesses to the glory of Christ in the gospel of Luke. The shepherds. That brings us to our third and final point. We've seen the glory veiled. We've seen the glory proclaimed. Now, let's notice sharing the glory seen. The shepherds heard the proclamation of the good news. They saw the baby Christ, and they began to make known what they had been told while glorifying and praising God. Now, here's what you have to understand. These guys are not a bunch of theologians. They're not priests. They're not scribes. They're not apostles. The apostles haven't been chosen yet. They're shepherds. They're poor. They're humble. That's actually the point. And you see it again and again in the Gospel of Luke. Again and again, if you read the Gospel of Luke, the kind of people that Christ and His kingdom comes to, the kind of people His kingdom gets extended through are often people of low estate that the high and the mighty don't have much use for? Is it not the profoundest disclosure of the glory and the grace of God that He would choose to give this kind of revelation of His own glory to shepherds? And now by His Spirit, through His Word, to people like us. See, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says to the church, not many of you were wise, brethren. Not many of you were noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
Do you understand that time and again when the Scriptures are open to us, when the Scriptures are read to us, when we read the Scriptures ourselves, that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that God is revealing Himself to us by His grace? And more importantly, have you responded to that by faith? Have you responded to the glory of His grace in Christ by trusting Jesus. In the shepherds outside Bethlehem, we see ordinary people who who heard and saw the glory of God in Christ and were driven to share what they saw. Do you know the story of the Boston shoe salesman who came to believe in Jesus? On one occasion, he heard about a judge living in the city who was a well-known public critic and skeptic about Christianity. So the converted shoe salesman decided to visit the judge in his chambers and went to see this well-educated man of standing and notoriety and share the gospel with him. The judge found it quite amusing that such a simple man would presume he could somehow convince such an educated man as himself of the truth of the Bible. As their conversation came to an end, the shoe salesman said something like this, Sir, you're an unbeliever and a skeptic, but I'm praying for you. Left his office. Sometime later, the judge showed up to a meeting that the shoe salesman was holding to inform him that he had, in fact, become a Christian. And that shoe salesman went on to have incredible impact on many, many other people also. His name was D.L. Moody. Here, it's shepherds who make known what had been told them concerning this child. And these shepherds show us how it is that God makes the good news of His glory in Jesus Christ known to more and more people. Ordinary people who have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ make Him known to more and more people. The good news of what God has done in Christ is shared through the humblest, the simplest of society when we've seen His glory. The detailed events around Bethlehem help us see the good news of God's glory in Christ, to believe it, to be sure of it, and then to go and share it. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for these, this, these Your people who are gathered here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Thank You that now for generations You have proclaimed the glory of God in the face of Jesus from this pulpit. And Lord, we would pray that if there would be one within the hearing of this sermon who as yet has not settled the certainty of their heart on Jesus that today by Your grace would be the day. And then, Lord, we pray that as we're in this season together, with its joys, and now, as we've heard for many, with their griefs, that by Your Spirit, through Your Word, would You help us all to see the glory and grace of God in Jesus. And would You help us to walk with Him, to follow Him, to be like Him, And as we are like Him, to share Him whenever You give us opportunity. Oh Lord, 
We pray that today and every other day this week, you would receive our praise because you are all glorious and most gracious. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people say, Amen. Amen.